You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 1st of February 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme coming up. Criticising the slow pace of uh, counteroffensive equals to spitting into the face of Ukrainian soldier who sacrifices his life every day. The EU must redouble its efforts to help Ukraine. Germany's Chancellor and three other European leaders warned that the bloc is falling short in its supply of weapons to the front line. As EU leaders meet, we'll look at how Kyiv can persuade the group to step up. Also coming up, three years after the military took control of Myanmar, the junta extend a state of emergency to continue their control of the rebellion. Plus, Spain's Congress blocks a controversial amnesty bill that aimed to protect Catalan separatists. What does this mean for political stability in the country? Our newspaper review will come from Paris today and then. We try to empower women with our silhouettes and with our vision. We really support diversity and we think that beauty can be in many, many different ways. So we really showcase that on our show and in our campaigns. We continue our coverage of SIF, Copenhagen's fashion festival. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. First, a quick look at what else is happening in today's news. Houthi rebels claim to have struck a U.S. merchant ship in the Red Sea. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said that the UN-Palestinian Refugee Agency must close. And the head of the FBI has warned that hackers linked to the Chinese government are targeting critical U.S. infrastructure, preparing to cause real-world harm to Americans. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, the German Chancellor Olaf Scholz and four other other European leaders have admitted that the European Union needs to increase its support to Ukraine. On the eve of an EU leaders' summit to break a deadlock on an aid package for Hungary, Scholz and his fellow leaders warned that Europe needs to intensify supplies to the front line. Well, that meeting happens today, but ahead of that, let's have a look at what is happening in Ukraine and also what the European Union can do to help. And to help us do that, I'm joined by Natalia Gumenyuk, who's a Ukrainian journalist based in Kiev. A very good morning to you, Natalia. Good morning. So could you just bring us up to date about the latest on the conflict in Ukraine, please? Where are where are we? Um, there will be, um, I would try to make the short answer. Um, so yes, Ukraine is defending itself uh, rather successfully. However, it's definitely not enough. And uh, there are some reforms going on, including in the army regarding the draft. Uh, there are some good news, like yesterday, there was one of the major prisoners exchange, one to two hundred seven people were able to return uh, Ukrainian soldiers from the Russian captivity. There are still strikes ongoing. Uh, so Ukraine is adjusting, but definitely to secure itself and protect the people. There is the uh, need in, 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 in more weapon, in better technologies, and in particularly more precise and better weapon to make this war more efficient. There is also a story that's been rumbling along for about a week involving the general, uh, the 
the uh, the general Valery Zaluzhny, the the head of the the, the military, uh, where what happened to you? Explain. Volodymyr Zelensky, the president, tried to sack Zaluzhny. Everything was set up as Zaluzhny being on his way out, but then suddenly there was a, a, a rapid reversal. Tell us more about that. So I think Ukraine is a bit trapped in kind of this uh, position of uh, being, you know, known for its unity. Uh, and it's very hard to channel. General Zaluzhny is extremely popular person, an extremely likable person that I also would like to say. So for around last maybe half a year, uh, there are a lot of discussions including inside the army about whether there is a need to change the military leadership in order to, you know, maybe change the way the Ukraine is fighting this war. What was okay for the first year and a half uh, was, you know, good enough, but it's not enough any longer. And we know that there are cha- there are discussions about whether there is a successful uh, military draft, whether the, in, in, in the current state the army is still uh, efficient enough because, you know, for the first year, everybody is a bit on emotions, everybody doing the best of what they can do. But on the second year, you see already some flaws. So this discussion is there. And um, in Ukraine, despite its award, despite its officially a military censorship, you know, there are a lot of leaks, there are a lot of discussion, political shows. So, you know, Ukrainian media environment still lives as if it's all not there. Uh, you know, so, so there are the rumors, there are the difficult relations, uh, and also we have the opportunity as Ukrainian journalists also uh, to talk to the military, despite they are not supposed to do that. Um, So we know that there are military who are satisfied with the leadership, there are military who are thinking that it's already a huge time for the reforms. And in this position, when the unity is so crucial for, for the West, for the partners, for the allies, but also for the society in Ukraine, it's actually extremely, you know, a bit of, kind of impossible to, to have this normal, usual military change. The government tries to play the way, kind of smooth the angles and not to have the con- the conflict. Still, there are a lot of, uh, you know, polls where the army has over 90% support, President Zelensky over 70 which is still extremely high. We also should understand that it's not just about the military. Uh, there was always a big part of the Ukrainian opposition who, you know, never really liked President Zelensky and was like that during the whole period of the war. So they, there is always a position to say it's the army which is doing everything good and the government which does everything wrong. So in this political environment, it's some. there is a risk that, you know, uh, reasonable change or any change could be, you know, not seen well in the society. It's pretty typical for the Ukrainian president, you know, have this situation when for like a months and months, there is a situation of uncertainty that somebody would be either sacked or fired. And then they look whether the public is ready to accept that. And if probably, you know, half a year ago, that would be a total shock. I think at this moment, sooner or later, this decision would change and there would be some change in the army leadership. Uh, Also, you know, officially the spokesperson of the president dismissed these rumors, uh, which were there a couple of days ago. They are dismissing the the Minister of Defense dismissed these rumors, but the ground is there. there. There might be the change in in the in the leadership, but I also think that it's also very important to see you know a broader picture of what's going on in the army during the last year, and that on the second year of the war, the change 
might come and somebody might be dissatisfied. It's it, it's not easy, uh, but that's it. Natalia, let's move on to this meeting among your EU leaders uh, today. One of the um, talks subjects is finding um, an update to the bloc's European peace facility that helps to pay for weapons. And there's a there's a discussion about five billion euros worth of increase. Um, the fact that Germany, the Czech Republic, Estonia, and the Netherlands, their premiers have said the European Union is not doing enough. I mean, how does Ukraine work around that, given the fact that it does need weapons, but clearly there is a feeling that not enough is being done? There is a feeling, and it's not just the feeling. Uh, you know, if you speak about the numbers, when I was recently in the meeting at the Davos, where there was speaking the foreign ministry of Lithuania, he very eloquently said that, you know, just Poland itself uh, requested from NATO the amount of the weapon for, for a year, which is, you know, dozen times bigger than what Ukraine has during the war, which shows kind of the real need of the army of the size similar to Ukraine and Poland. Um, so it's really the fact. But of course, the big issue is the position of the Hungary, who is a bit of the outcast of the European Union. And it's, you know, there is a very strong anti-Ukrainian and a rhetoric. The Hungarians doesn't like to tell it, uh, to name this uh, rhetoric, you know, pro-Russian. However, it's exactly what the Kremlin says. But uh, there are some also interesting news. You know, on Monday, the uh, foreign minister of Hungary came to Ukraine, to the border of Ukraine, to the biggest town on the in the Hungarian border, uh, where he met the uh, head of the administration of the president of Ukraine, Andriy Yermak, and the minister of foreign affairs. They, for the first time, more or less discussed a possible meeting of the uh, of the President Zelensky with Viktor Orban. Uh, and uh, there are demands of Hungary to change some of the Ukrainian legislation regarding the education of the ethnic minorities, uh, the ethnic mi- Hungarian ethnic minority in Ukraine. To be honest, it's a bit symbolic because a lot of the demands of Hungary, Ukraine has already, you know, uh, do- they were already fulfilled, but, you know, the the, the talk is as if it hasn't been done. It's, it's, so is it's, Viktor Orban still the real sticking point here? Because first and foremost, he's blocked EU financial and military aid for Ukraine. And he's also held back on ratifying NATO membership, for first for Finland and now, now for Sweden. Is there a sense that if Orban were persuaded or dissuaded, which is not a mean feat, then things would be much easier for Ukraine to say, bring us more weapons and actually start to produce them? Absolutely. It's it's really uh, the issue. It was, you know, the decisive uh, moment when at the last meeting, Viktor Orban just left the room in order to uh, let, you know, support uh, not to have this veto over Ukraine, which would be very bad, you know, very contradictory to his usual public image. But it's really broader. It's more also EU issue. What we understand that it, he had also talked with uh, Giorgio Meloni, the Italian prime minister, because Viktor Orban is looking at the elections of the European Parliament in summer. He wants to have the uh, the alliance with the European con- conservatives and ultra-right. And uh, at that time, the countries like Italy, they are supporting Ukraine. And, you know, it looks like the Hungary doesn't want to be an only outcast even in this camp. So they are absolutely crucial. And therefore, Ukraine is kind of hopeful for today's meeting. And uh, also, so um, there are some, not really like concessions, we don't know how it would turn out, that uh, the support for Ukraine would be, you know, gradually uh 
let's say, assessed every year. That's also something Hungary demanded, uh, and that probably can be looked upon. And there's a message to other countries, isn't there, that needs to be sent out today from the European Union. Um, and the suggestion is that this message is being directed at France, that, that are saying that um, non-EU countries now need to be brought in to participate in a joint production effort to help with armaments to be sent to, to be sent to the front line in Ukraine. And the issue here is that France doesn't want other partner countries as well to come in. I mean, how important is that for Ukraine to know that the, that the European Union isn't just moving together as much as it can, but also it's bringing in other nations as well in, in a joint effort? You know, it's also very practical. Uh, We understand by now that there is a a huge lack for the ammunition in Europe, uh, you know, for for now to accept that it, it took some time to to rethink um, in, in in rather the conti- in the continent which really looked forward not for not having the wars, but it would be still not enough. We really understand that it's not enough for the uh, EU members and also um, the you know even to understand that Ukraine uh, is still fighting with largely post-Soviet weapon and type of the weapon which uh, you know isn't really and won't be produced any longer in EU it also matters but there are also a few uh, global countries which are um which are potential uh, which not potential which are european allies so uh because it's not enough uh and it won't be enough uh there won't be opportunity to develop this capacity fast that sounds like a very reasonable uh idea which ukraine also count on because ukraine is also working and uh, reaching out to numerous partners globally uh, to, uh, to to get the support in terms of the military aid. Natalia Gomenyuk, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Kyiv. You're listening to The Globalist live on Monocle Radio. Time in uh, Napierdor is seven for is thirteen fourteen, uh, and in London here it's seven fourteen a.m. Now it has been three years since Myanmar's military charged into the country's capital Napierdor and seized, seized control in a coup. Well, uh, yesterday the junta extended a state of emergency in place since taking power because, despite a consistent and violent crackdown on dissent, a pro-democracy rebellion is still testing the military's ability to govern. Well, I'm joined now by Dr. Ronan academic and author of Myanmar's Rohingya Genocide, Identity, History and Hate Speech. Good morning, Ronan. Good morning. Welcome back to Monocle Radio. So just explain to us, in the last three years, I think we all remember that rather surreal image of a woman doing a a workout while the the, the military vehicles charged into Nepiodor. How has Myanmar's country changed? I mean, more than four and a half thousand people have died for starters. Well, it's a catastrophe. I mean, the country is in shambles. Uh, we, we were, I mean, when we when we saw those uh, bizarre images of an aerobics instructor live streaming an aerobics class in Napador as as armed vehicles streamed past them towards the capital to to arrest, detain, and murder uh, members of parliament who'd, who'd only recently been elected at a general election. Uh, so much has changed in the country. The military is reviled within Myanmar. This is a this is a dictatorship that the people don't want, and they've resisted it strongly since 2021. And that resistance initially took the form of peaceful protest, but peaceful protests were met by the military 
with live rounds of ammunition and the targeting of the targeting of protesters by sniper fire. Um, protest has morphed into uh, resistance that it takes many different forms. There's been public servants uh, on strike. Today, again, we'll see another of what what people in Myanmar are calling a silent strike, where people just stay home. No one goes on the streets. No one goes to work. People don't people don't go to the shops, so the streets will be silent. It's an, it's an eerie experience for the residents. But also resistance has taken the form of um, military resistance to the coup. So we have uh, people's defense force groups who have taken on uh, who have taken on the Myanmar military, and we've also seen ethnic and religious minority armed groups taking on the military, and they've had some successes. So when we spoke a year ago, around a year ago, about uh, the second anniversary of the coup, it was a very different situation on the ground. Now what we see is the Myanmar military having suffered significant military reversals on the ground in Myanmar. I mean, really, they're controlling between 20 and 25 percent of the land mass of the country in, in any meaningful sense. I mean, that's the that's that's the large cities, Yangon, Mandalay, the, the, the their capital, Naypyidaw. But the military's control of the country is now much more limited than it was. And I think today for people in Myanmar who have been resisting the coup strongly for three years, they'll be feeling that the signs are much more positive, that the military can be booted from office someday soon. So what does that mean for the next two or three years internally in Myanmar? Because the the picture that you describe is one of a much more unstable um, situation than perhaps the junta would like to think. Well, well I think the junta is going to fight very hard to, to hang on to power. And I don't, I don't see them coming to the negotiation table any day soon. Uh, they've been offered negotiation for three years. ASEAN's had a, had a five-point consensus plan, which a, a core element of that has been negotiation. It's about it's about all parties uh, uh, laying down weapons and negotiating. The junta simply regards opposition to its rule, whether it be the politicians that were elected at the last election in Myanmar, whether it be Aung San Suu Kyi, one of those, whether it be representatives of ethnic or religious minority groups, they regard them as terrorists and they will not negotiate with them. So I think we'll, we'll, we'll see a, a quite a quite a bloody end to the Myanmar military. The, pe- the people are determined to get them out of power and the people will fight to achieve that. But what happens in the aftermath of the Myanmar military, again, will be uh, will be another challenge for Myanmar to, to tackle. Now, there's a, there's a national unity government. This is a, a government in exile. This is a government made up of of most groups that that are opposed to the Myanmar military controlling the country, but when I say government in exile, that, that that's its core problem. While it while it influences people's defence force groups, mainly among the Buddhist heartland of the country, they don't directly control many of the ethnic and religious armed groups that that have been doing quite a lot of the heavy lifting within Myanmar. So so memberships of, say, the the Three Brotherhood Alliance. I mean, these these are the groups that have taken territory from uh, from the Myanmar military recently in Shan State and in Rakhine State. And those groups will have uh, some interests that are not the same as the national unity government. They'll be much more localised and their interests may not be the same as each other as well. So there'll be some challenges going forward. And I think I think the pressure for the international community is to, to work to assist all of those groups so that the aftermath of the Myanmar military is peaceful. Well, let's talk about the international community because there's a meeting, uh, as an ASEAN meeting on Monday in, in neighbouring Laos. So it, it's having to deal with Myanmar just across the border. Um, where ASEAN has 
basically told, told Myanmar to sort itself out because that five-point plan that you mentioned um, a moment ago hasn't been adhered to by Myanmar um, and it's been banned from attending ASEAN summits and ministerial meetings. And There is a difficult path that ASEAN has to tread here, doesn't it? Namely, a, a plea, a call for Myanmar to, to sort, you know, to... to bring about peace and, and bring about stability. But at the same time, Myanmar isn't allowed at the table. Well, ASEAN's been toothless in terms of its interaction with Myanmar. I mean, the five-point consensus has been was agreed in, in April of 2021. A core point of that would, would involve negotiation. And when you have a Myanmar military that simply regards uh, its opponents, the majority of people in the country, as akin to terrorists or, 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 or treasonous, that if ASEAN wants action, it's got to back that with something more than words. The Myanmar military is not going to react to anything more than words. ASEAN hasn't been able to offer anything more than that. So, so effectively, it's toothless. So its its view that Myanmar needs to sort itself out is, is, is basically a reiteration of its policy, which is non-intervention in in one of its its member countries. But Myanmar is sorting itself out. The people of Myanmar have taken action themselves to sort this out. I, I mean, I think it would be better if we could have some some leadership from ASEAN and, and, and other groups to ensure that the future is not chaotic and is not worked out on the basis of who happens to have the guns within Myanmar at any given time. Um, th- there will be there will be a great need for that. There'll be a great need for rebuilding within the country. I mean, th- th- there are 2.5 million people in Myanmar that have been displaced by conflict. The economy is a, is is an utter shambles. There'll be a great need on the part of of the people of Myanmar to to rely upon international assistance. Uh, it would be better if that was if that was offered sooner rather than later, and was more than just words. Ronan Lee, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Still to come on today's programme, we examine whether US sanctions on Venezuela can ever really work. And we also have a look at the latest urbanism news and join Monocle's team at the Copenhagen International Fashion Fair. Stay with us. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Let's continue with a look at today's newspapers. Joining me on the line from Paris is Agnès Parier, who's journalist and author of Notre Dame, the Soul of France. A very good morning to you, Agnès. How's Paris looking this morning? Well, it's looking a bit grey, but apparently it's going to be sunnier uh, this afternoon. I do like these little weather reports that we get. It's great. And it's always quite a good grey in Paris. Paris does grey better than most. Oh, yes. It's um, called the grisaille. It's a good, good grey, a fine grey. Right. The, the, the headlines coming out of France for the last few days are nothing to do with Paris's beauty and France's beauty. We have seen some pretty ugly scenes on uh, the main roads in and out of Paris. Well, I'm not sure they are very ugly. They are quite picturesque. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose if you're sitting in the Elysee Palace, they're pretty ugly. This is a concerted and very effective blockade and strike by French farmers, isn't it? Well, yes. French farmers have, have vowed to cut off Paris's 
food supply. Imagine that. Um, well, I can tell you so far we have food on our plate, but it might change. So they have converged with their tractors towards uh, the Rangis market. So Rangis is just outside of Paris. It's a wholesale, a wholesale food market, very important. Uh, and it's even uh, called the belly uh, of Paris. So um, there are there eight roadblocks on motorways around the capital. Um, so basically they want to organize a siege of Paris. I'm quoting them. Um, but you see the problem, and there are plenty of, of problem here, is that the new prime minister, Gabriel Attal, uh, who has gone and meet them and, has, and really has been quite courageous. Um, and he goes, you know, three times a day, goes and meet them and talk to them very late in the evening, all the, the different farmers unions. But his hands are tied by Brussels because this is where all the main decisions are taken on uh, European agriculture. And it's interesting how the government so far has has really mostly allowed the protesting farmers to do as they like. Um, I mean, it's important that the Rajis market, uh, you know, be kept open. So yesterday, 91 farmers were arrested when they tried to reach the site, but they will probably be released without charge. So, so far, quite lenient. Uh, the riot police is just there and are, are actually uh, in, almost in conversation with the farmers on motorways. Uh, the atmosphere is quite relaxed. Now, all the eyes are on President Macron, who uh, will meet Ursula von der Leyen, the EU Commission president, later this morning. Uh, basically, he would like to have, for his farmers, but probably for European farmers, because as you know, it's not only in France that farmers are uh, protesting. So he wants fewer environmental constraints and perhaps the beginning of a clampdown on food imports from Ukraine, because in the European uh, strategy to support Ukraine, of course, uh, a lot of cereals from Ukraine has uh, arrived in the EU, and um, that influx of cheap Ukrainian imports have uh, meant uh, that EU farmers have have suffered a collapse in the price of cereals, down by 27%. At this, and at the same time, the cost of farming is increasing due to environmental measures. So, you know, it's it's a very dif difficult headache because also the EU uh, is trying to uh, uh, encourage and, and force, really, farmers to stop polluting as they have been uh, through intensive uh, farming, which the EU, of course, uh, did encourage in the last decades. But at the same time, they want to produce more food for Europe, and that's not possible. It's just not possible. Also, consumers will have to face and to accept um, that to, to pay more expensive prices for their food if they want their farmers to actually uh, earn a living. So I think we are all concerned by this and um, it should take place in Brussels. Um, let's move on to another story that, well, uh, obviously it's all happening in the, on the outskirts of Paris and they're threatening to sort of empty the belly of the, of the Parisians. That's not going to go down well. Um, <laughs> President Macron isn't there. He's in Sweden uh, for a state visit. And there is a tremendous amount of coverage, not least for the amount of, well, there's been quite a lot of quite impressive dressing up, hasn't there? Oh, quite impressive, yes. And actually, it didn't go uh, down well with the far right and the far left, of course, in France, who think uh, such lavish 
banquet is um, is you know unwelcome uh, at the moment. But you know this state visit, two t- state visits, the first one in 24 years. Last time it was Jacques Chirac in 2000. Well, had been you know planned for a very long time. Um, and the magazine Tatler, I had look have not so much details on the actual visit, but the pictures are incredible. You know at the palace uh, in Stockholm. Uh, with the king and the queen and all the royal family, and uh, Brigitte Macron looking immaculate um, in a blue powder dress, uh, wonderful, and President Macron is quite dashing himself. Now, if you want to know more about the state visit beyond uh, the the, uh, the dresses, uh, then you, you you should have a look at Le Parisien, uh, which has a very interesting um, set of figures. Of course, President Macron and all presidents on uh, state visit never travel alone, so he, he, uh, he came with uh, business leaders and cultural attaches of all kinds. And we've learned that the trade uh, between the two countries, France and Sweden, is the highest it's ever been, with 22 billion euros worth of goods and services. And um, so really the the emphasis, I think, between the the Swedish government, really, uh, and the king and the French president have been research, nuclear power and uh, scientific innovation, because uh, um, Sweden is is leading on this. Uh, Finally, and yes, tell us about a story which I know for a fact that you are deeply, deeply passionate about, which is the saviour of a, which is the attempt to save a room in Paris, but a room of extreme significance in your world. Well, it's more than a room. It's actually a lovely, uh, modest-looking, you know, built in the 1910s. It's what we call pavilion. Uh, so it's a small building in the heart of the left bank, Pavillon des Sources, and it was it was one of the two laboratories of Marie Curie. So it has historical importance, and we discovered that it was not listed. And there's this young. A whistleblower who discovered the whole thing back in September and started alerting on Twitter or now X. Um, and w- what is astonishing in this story is that the it is the Curie Institute h- himself itself that wants to demolish that pavilion uh, to build a, a rather, if you look at the the, the plans, uh, rather um, ugly looking uh, office building. Um, instead, um, and it would ruin completely the perspective, uh, because in the back, uh, you've got the Pantheon, where Marie Curie and her husband Pierre are uh, resting. And also, what was really shocking is that they pretended, um, and we know now that it was a bunch of lies, that the pavilion was uh, com- contaminated beyond repair, that they pretended that Marie Curie, in fact, never carried any research there that it was just a sort of depot or or place uh, that only had um, waste, radioactive waste, and all this was a lie. So they managed to get permission to demolish it, but this young whistleblower over Christmas managed to alert uh, important people, and there was a campaign, and at the 11th hour, uh, the then French culture minister um, said, look, uh, wait a second, we need to look at this and to have alternative plan. Since 
we've had a change of culture minister, Rachida Dati, and she's quite embarrassed because the Curie Institute is very powerful. Um, but there's this campaign of Paris lovers who insist this pavilion should just uh, become perhaps a museum next to uh, the Marie Curie, very small museum. And so yesterday she announced, and you've got all the details in the Parisien, that this pavilion would be transported brick by brick um, next. I mean, it, the whole thing doesn't really make any sense. Um, and uh, to, to be put just next to the actual um, and current museum so that the office building could be uh, built on top of it. So nobody is actually uh, happy in Paris at, at the moment. But I'll I'll keep you posted. Thank you. Please do. That was Agnès Parier on the line from Paris. You're listening to Monocle Radio. It's me, Emma Nelson, bringing you The Globalist. The time here in London is 7.32. A quick look now at the rest of today's headlines. Houthi rebels claim to have struck a US merchant ship in the Red Sea. The maritime security company Aubrey said a vessel sailing south of the Yemeni port of Aden reported an explosion on board. Meanwhile, the US has launched new airstrikes in Yemen, targeting 10 drones reportedly being set up to launch. The Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has said that the UN-Palestinian Refugee Agency must close. Israel has accused UNRWA staff of being involved in a Hamas assault on Israel on October the 7th. Donors, including the United States, have paused funding pending an investigation. And the head of the FBI has warned that hackers linked to the Chinese government are targeting critical U.S. infrastructure, preparing to cause real-world harm to Americans. Christopher Wray told a congressional committee that water treatment plants, the electric grid, oil and natural gas pipelines are among the targets of Chinese state-sponsored hacking operations. And those are the headlines. in Barcelona, 7.33 here in London. Now, Spain's Congress has blocked a controversial amnesty bill that aimed to protect Catalan separatists. The Together for Catalonia party voted against it over fears it doesn't provide enough protection for politicians who are being investigated for terror-related crimes. Well, this legislation has divided Spain and the government as well. And to tell us more, I'm joined on the line from Madrid by the journalist Guy Hedko. Very good morning to you, Guy. Good morning. So it's quite a convoluted background, but could you just explain how we're here, please? Uh, yes, I mean, it is rather convoluted, but this uh, amnesty law was presented by the, the, the government of socialist Pedro uh, Sanchez back in November. Um, and the idea is that it will uh, remove legal, all legal action, pending legal action against more than 300 Catalan nationalists um, who've been facing charges or other kinds of legal action uh, for separatist activity over the last decade, in particular linked to uh, a failed attempt to break away from Spain in 2017. Um, This amnesty was demanded by Catalan nationalist parties um, in exchange for their support for Mr. Sanchez in Parliament. So they said, if you give us this amnesty, we will support you and help you form a new government. And he did that. Um, now the now that it has been presented to Congress, obviously it has to go through Parliament and be approved, and that's where we we came to this problem um, on Mon- on uh, yeah, Tuesday when it was rejected uh, by Congress uh, because um, some of the Catalan nationalists felt that the final document which was going through um, was under threat from legal investigations into some of the the Catalan nationalists who were hoping to be 
benefit beneficiaries of this law um, because they were being investigated for terrorism, which wasn't included in this bill. So that's why they voted against uh, this law. Um, and it will have to then face another vote later on. But at the moment, uh, the, the law has not gone through. So the, effectively, this has absolutely pulled the rug out from under Pedro Sanchez. Well, yes, it has. I mean, he was dismayed at this result because he had assumed, most people had assumed that the, the law was going to go through. He has a very narrow majority in Congress, but a majority nonetheless. But it's a majority which relies on these Catalan nationalists. Uh, including this party Together for Catalonia, um, of uh, Carlos Puigdemont, who the, the former Catalan president, um, who was is really the highest the, the highest profile beneficiary of this law, potentially the highest profile beneficiary of the law, and he really holds the key to the stability of this government. Um, he only has seven MPs with his party, but um, those seven MPs can decide really whether or not the government gets uh, legislation through. So the question now is whether Pedro Sanchez can persuade Mr. Puigdemont and his nationalists to support uh, the bill in a couple of weeks' time, maybe making some tweaks to it, um, because otherwise we're really at a stalemate and things would look very, very tricky indeed for the Spanish government. And we're now looking at a situation where the the issue of Catalonian separatism is being brought front and centre once again. Yes, we are. Um, And... That's not so much because uh, separatist feeling has been rising recently. It really hasn't. In terms of uh, the polls, um, support for independence is pretty much at its lowest point since uh, before that attempt to break away in 2017. It's somewhere around 40 percent in Catalonia, which is um, a fair bit lower than it was a few years ago. But the reason we're talking about it so much is because these Catalan nationalist parties have Uh, so much influence now in the Spanish parliament. They can make or break the Spanish government. So it's pure parliamentary arithmetic, which means that uh, Catalan nationalists have this influence um, and they are able to use that as leverage and get concessions out of the Spanish government, um, such as this amnesty. But as we've seen, the amnesty isn't quite to their liking. Guy Hedgeco, thank you so much for joining us on the line from Madrid. You're listening to Monocle Radio. Now, the US has warned it will reinstate sanctions on Venezuela's oil sector if the Venezuelan government doesn't lift a ban on a leading opposition politician running for president later this year. The Biden administration said it'll allow a suspension of energy sanctions to expire in April if Maria Corina Machado and other opposition figures aren't allowed to compete against President Nicolas Maduro. Well, Dr Christopher Sabatini is a senior fellow for Latin America at Chatham House here in London. He's also a Monocle Radio regular. A very good morning to you, Chris. Good morning, Emma. How are you? Very well, thank you. And glad to have you on the radio. So tell us, what's happened? So in October 17th, the opposition and the government uh, came together in Barbados and announced they're going to resume negotiations. And the government agreed to several things. One was that it would establish a process to reevaluate whether it should undisqualify. I know that's an awkward word. Uh, the three candidates who had previously disqualified. Uh, and then it would also invite international election monitors to monitor 
elections, presidential elections in 2024 at a date still to be set and also allow for freedom of expression. A day afterwards, the United States uh, said it would lift a series of sanctions that have been imposed largely by the Trump administration in 2019, including sanctions on uh, the oil sector for investment in the oil sector and also for investment in the gold sector with the state uh, gold mining company. What happened, though, is last week, the Supreme Court handed down a decision without any sort of formal process that, that basically maintained the disqualification. In particular, this woman, Maria Karina Machado, whom you mentioned, Emma, uh, who was elected in an opposition primary uh, late in 2023. And basically, and then they rounded up about 30 or so opposition leaders uh, and put them in jail. Some of them are still in hiding, actually. Um, the... Um, and so basically the U.S. said, well, the deal's off. Uh, and, and it already said that it would snap back sanctions in April 18th if progress hadn't been made on these issues. And now it's saying, yes, it's going to snap back the sanctions. The, the Venezuelan government is not behaving in good faith. Now, the Venezuelan vice president has rejected this from the U.S. and, and has called it downright blackmail. Well, I, that's a little bit of a stretch. I mean, I think when you start rounding up your own citizens and putting them in prison um, and then, you know, conduct a kangaroo court trial to determine whether someone should be disqualified or not, um, I think that's, you know, it could be worthy of punishment. It's not blackmail. Um, it's simply, you know, trying to force a government to uphold its international commitments, international norms. So I think it's a little bit of an exaggeration, but the Venezuelan government is very good at playing indignation and outrage uh, for performance reasons. Tell us a little bit more about the, the importance of the oil industry to, to Venezuela. It's an absolutely crucial part of its economy, isn't it? So the reimposition of sanctions would feel and, and look like what? It would basically cripple the economy. The uh, So first of all, you know, Venezuela depends on 95% of its exports uh, on oil, for oil. Uh, and so it's it's essential to its economy. What had happened was, first because of lack of investment and in the nationalization of fields and the state oil company, um, oil production had declined from 3 million barrels a day to about 700,000 barrels a day. Uh, and then the U.S. imposed sanctions. And that prevented uh, international companies from uh, basically engaging in joint ventures uh, with the, the Venezuelan state oil company. Uh, and so consequently, the, the, because of mismanagement and the sanctions, the, the economy contracted by 75 percent. Um, with the lifting of sanctions on, in, in August, October rather, last year, um, the economy was expected to grow by 10 uh, percent and revenue was expected to increase several fold. So it was looking at a huge windfall, granted limited because it was going to take a while for some of this to come online, but it was looking at a huge windfall. And, and obviously that may be vanishing as of April 18th, should the U.S. reimpose sanctions. Now, um, if we look at the, the long-term game here, I mean, Nicolas Maduro has been president of Venezuela for more than a decade now and has resisted every single attempt to try and introduce a more democratic system. The imposition of sanctions or the reimposition of sanctions would hurt, but ultimately, is there just a sense that after a certain while, those sanctions would inevitably have to be lifted because Maduro shows no signs of going anywhere? That's exactly right. Emma. It's this is this is a classic problem that I think the United States and the world is going to face. Is what do you do with sanctions? Um, they're 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 imposed with ease, but what you do with them in terms of leverage is difficult. You know, basically, you know, they're they're founded on on the idea that if you impose sanctions, you know, leaders will realize their economy's crippled and they're going to give up power. But that doesn't happen. Um, dictatorial leaders are dictators. They don't really care what their population thinks. And as you mentioned, Maduro is a survivor. He survived massive sanctions uh, imposed in 2019, as I said, and then massive, uh, unprecedented contraction of the economy. And he's still there. So, yes, the truth is, is sanctions really hurt the people. They don't 
hurt those in charge. And there, it, it doesn't seem to bring any sort of political change. But the question is, is how do you leverage them in a way that you can get the change that you want without rewarding a regime unilaterally that simply doesn't deserve it? Could the change come from within? Because obviously there's a there's a real sense that Maria Karina Machado and and the rest of those who are putting up a a strong opposition um, are clearly a big threat to, to, to Maduro. I mean, um, when Machado won a primary, um, I think the, 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 the vote was 90% in her favour. You, you have this issue, don't you, that there is a sense that democracy, democracy is, is desired from certain, within certain pockets of, of Venezuela. Um, what are the chances of it happening organically? That's that's an excellent question, and it, it's worth noting. And probably the bright spot in all this is, is sort of the de- despite the, the terrible economic and political conditions, the democratic spirit of Venezuela remains. Venezuelans remain, um, and, and so what we're seeing now is, is yes, Maria Corina Machado, um, and, and and the people are sort of continuing to to stick to the idea of free and fair elections in 2024, whenever the government decides to call them. And the government has said that this weekend it's going to determine what the what the it's calling it, its chronology of the electoral. Um, race will be this year, uh, but it still hasn't set that. But yes, but how change will actually happen is not clear. You know, one possibility is that even if Maria Karina Machado is disqualified, that the opposition pulls together and finds a consensus candidate. This has been done elsewhere. It was done in Chile in 1989, for example. It happened sort of de facto in Guatemala last year, which elected uh, Bernardo Arevalo, a democracy candidate, a democratic candidate, after the government had disqualified three other candidates. So, you know, maybe there's some way the opposition, because the government does have to have elections, and according to polls, the government would lose resoundingly if elections were held um, anytime right now. So it's it you know th- there is that possibility. The possibility of change from within, as you say, defections within the inner circle that would cause some sort of soft coup or something that hasn't happened. And and that's why Maduro has been able to survive. He's very wily. He's packed the military with corrupt cronies. Uh, his inner circle is very tightly controlled. Um, it's going to have to happen through an election or some form of power sharing. How that path forward is going to evolve, we don't know yet. But I think I'm an optimist on this. I think there could be an opportunity here. Dr. Christopher Sabatini, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. Just nudging 7.47 here in London. Time now to talk urbanism with the urban affairs commentator, Kat Hanna. She joins me in the studio. Very good morning to you, Kat. Good to see you. Good morning. Good to be back. Right. How's London looking? So this is a story, and I always find it interesting reading about London in, you know, other other papers. Um, so this is a New York Times piece uh, looking at the potential for the London High Line. So what we're looking at there is um, what could the London High Line look like? And for those who aren't familiar, this is a proposal for a similar scheme to the New York High Line uh, in Camden, in London. And 
what's quite interesting is it talks a bit about what some of the similarities are, some of the differences are. Doesn't talk too much about how it would be funded. That was definitely um, one question for me. But does highlight how this kind of, I guess, quite different way of providing public space and green space in cities, you know, is, is you know, proving quite popular. You know, across the Just world. explain to us a little bit about how the High Line works in New York and how its its sort of sister would operate in the British capital. Yeah, so essentially, you know, what this is is parts of um, a disused railway. Um, and actually, the, the slight difference that you've got in London is that parts of it would be running adjacent to what is still uh, a running railway. A not so disused railway. <laughs> yes, ex- exactly. Um, but what it really does do is it gives you quite a different perspective on a city. So as the article highlights, this would be about 25 feet up in the air. Um, some places narrowing down and then in other places actually going quite wide and almost creating a a park effect as well. So part of this is about green space. Part of this is also actually just about walkability and again providing that different perspective and also providing walking routes that are probably a bit more pleasant than they maybe were before. I mean, if you look, if if you sort of a quick search online would suggest that we've been talking about this for quite a while and the idea of elevated walkways and paths and and green spaces for, for Londoners is... Is not a new one. Uh, I think it's about a year and a half since I last saw London will get its first High Line. Where are the sticking points here? I, I imagine it would be something about who owns what, who operates what, who designs what and who pays for what. Because if you have such a sort of a, a long stretching piece of public space, you're going to start crossing over into other people's patches. I think that's definitely going to be a factor. Um, so interestingly, the article does note planning permission was given for a section um, a year ago. But a big question here is obviously also around funding. Um, the article highlights they'd expect the London version to cost around £35 million, um, and that fundraising is in progress, but doesn't really highlight much more than there. But as you said, if you're going through that long area, it's also about where are those points where people access the High Line as well, because actually, again, that can prove very popular, but actually in certain areas it can be quite tricky to, to, to access. Uh, let's move on to a story about the cost of infrastructure. This is from the Financial Times, uh, and the consultancy BCG has uh, basically worked out how much each country spends on maintaining and developing infrastructure. Strangely enough, the United Kingdom spends more than France, Germany and Spain. And anyone who's been to France, Germany and Spain recently will know that they have some pretty good infrastructure projects. Not perfect, but pretty good. Um, the United Kingdom sort of all left scratching our heads a little bit about where all the money's going. Absolutely. So this piece, and this is something that's it's quite a common um, a way of approaching research in this area, is to look almost, you know, per kilometre of road or per, you know, length of track, what are the comparative costs that you get? And also, what are some of the times that, that's taken? And as the F- FTP's highlights, um, things cost more uh, in, in the UK. And I think it highlights, you know, three kind of particular factors in the UK that are really quite, you know, salient to this position. Firstly, is that we've got quite a lot of old infrastructure. Um, that's both buildings, but that's also, you know, transport infrastructure as well. Secondly, we've got already high public debt and we've got, you know, inflation, meaning projects are costing a lot more. And obviously noise around HS2 last year is just one example of that. And then thirdly, as with all countries, we've got this question of how are we going to transition to a low carbon economy? And again, how is that going to be funded and delivered as well? So that's kind of one aspect that the, the article highlights. But then it's also about, well, what impact does policy make as well? And what's quite interesting is a couple of commentators saying, actually, it's not just that it can be expensive to deliver infrastructure in the UK. It's that the environment in which you're doing it, and by environment I'm talking kind of policy and politics and planning, 
is, I think, to, to quote the article, highly uncertain and volatile, which, again, can imagine if you're maybe an investor wanting to get involved, if there are other opportunities where you're not dealing with that uncertainty, the UK is potentially relatively less attractive. This uncertainty is what? Political uncertainty, economic uncertainty, social uncertainty? Where, I mean, where are the sticking points that make the United Kingdom such an expensive place to build? So I think that well, what the article highlights here is a lack of a defined infrastructure policy. I think there is probably that. There is also maybe the fact that it's not just one policy. It's We often have multiple policies and plans, often with a relatively short shelf life. So potentially even when there is one, knowing actually, well, is that going to still be the deal if I'm delivering a an infrastructure project, and we know these often can take more than one political cycle, knowing what that certainty looks like is quite difficult. Tell us, I mean, you, you work in this sort of area in terms of long-term infrastructure projects. How does that uncertainty affect an urbanist's ability day-to-day to actually to plan and to and to build something better? So I think, look, generally, I think people involved in planning these you know, major projects you've kind of got better um, at how you factor in that uncertainty and often designing for various different options as well. But, I th- you know, I think it is difficult. It's, it's, look, it's quite a kind of, it's a bit of a cliche to say, oh, you know, investors hate uncertainty. But actually, most investors are used to dealing with that. They will just have limits of that much they can do. And again, over what sorts of timescales as well. Kat Hannah, thank you so much for joining me in the studio. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Finally, we head to Denmark, where the 62nd edition of the Copenhagen International Fashion Fair is taking place. Monocle Radio is there in a rather lovely little pop-up stall and broadcasting there for the rest of the week in our cafe studio. Our design editor, Nick Monise, sat down earlier with Esther Aron of the Budapest-based Aron to talk about her latest collection and the future of fashion. Tell me how you, because I, I am super curious, that link between fashion and art yeah. as a creative director. How do you choose who to partner with. I mean, it sounds like you have that value alignment there, but how do you find someone with with those values that align? I think first is always first impression, a connection visually and aesthetically, and then it's always the next step is to look behind and to understand the vision of uh, the particular artist and just to get to know more of their work and them as a person. And I think it was really interesting for us to understand how differently they think and just how like a person who creates objects or a team who creates clothes when they meet up and how that uh, brings new ideas and how the theory part behind it. I think that's super interesting. It's very inspiring for me. And I think it's also very important for us because every season we like to connect our clean lines and silhouettes with something that you can find in small little details and in colors and that little extra art that meets up with the brand's DNA I think that's very important for us every season. I mean I've got to ask as well there's a host of different fashion weeks across the world you're bringing your brand global why pick Copenhagen to do a show in? Why this city? I think it was a a few years ago when we first arrived to the city and we had this amazing dinner with amazing creative people and amazing community from Copenhagen. I felt I could live here or I I felt very safe and I really appreciated the intimacy of the city and I felt like the women are very empowering and so many babies around everywhere and I just felt like I could live here with my family and we could have real conversation with people here. It's not... We don't have time for anything because it's so, so super busy. And also, 
we really appreciate and we would like to support the work of the Copenhagen Fashion Week that they put so much effort on sustainability. So we share a lot of similar important visions and also, of course, the Danish design sits very close to us and I think there are like a hundred other reasons why uh, we connect so much to this city. It's very honest and a good feeling for us to be here. Tell us a little bit more about the values that define you as a brand. Like, is sustainability key to what you do? I feel like you can't be a brand in any field in 2024 without talking about that. Tell us a little bit about that. So we're definitely trying to be responsible. I think it's a very hard thing in this industry, but we do work only with the raw materials that are certified and we try to work with yarns and fabrics that are recycled. So we put a lot of work into this, but to be really honest, it's very challenging and it's a very complex uh, situation we face every season, but we really push ourselves season by season to do even better and even better and also it's that we are in a way like a a small little brand and I think producing in the surrounding countries and trying to work with the best raw materials and trying to create quality that could be for a long time for everyone. We're trying to do pieces that you don't have to change the next season. So we're trying to create something that could stay there for a longer time. But we do work with hand knitting pieces and recycled cashmere, responsible wool, traceable leather, and yeah, many other raw materials. Tell us a little bit about that role that the artisans do play in in the work and why finding, you know, you talked about sourcing locally, why finding these people to work with is so important to the ultimate end product for Aaron? I think it's super important and also that's why we try to work with all the suppliers very closely so we understand where it comes from and we try to trace everything and try to see in the processes and in the factories. So we try to stand beside people who share the same vision or that they share that it's also important for them to take this seriously. I think it's very natural for me because I have a daughter and I do care about her future and it's just very natural for me to care about this as a mother. I mean, that, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. I mean, there's obviously, selfishly, I also care about my own future, but I think yeah. when you've also got someone else's yes. future that you have in mind, I think that's really important and really powerful. Just finally, we've got an opportunity to broadcast something that's really important to you. What are the key things that you want people to know or want people to think about when they think about Aaron? I guess is that we're really trying to create pieces that represent quality, that can stay with you, that are from the best possible raw material. We try to empower women with our silhouettes and with our vision. We really support diversity and we think that beauty can be in many, many different ways. So we really showcase that on our show and in our campaigns. It's super important for us. So it's really empowering women and just really love yourself and we would like to be part of that. Esther Aaron there from Aaron, and you can hear the special episodes of Monocle on Design in partnership with the Copenhagen International Fashion Fair online right now at monocle.com slash radio.
That's all the time we have for today's programme. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and thanks too to the producers, Vincent McAvinney, Chris Chermack, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Monica Lillis. Our researcher was Naomi Ekwa and our studio manager was Steph Chungu. After the headlines, more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday in London and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>